be going through the book of Ephesians for the next 24 weeks or so. Um, We're looking forward to what God has for us in store from His Word. Let's read Ephesians 1, 1 1-4. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for inspiring Paul to write Your words. Thank You for breathing Your words out to him and through him thousands of years ago. Thank You that Your Word was not just applicable for him and for the original hearers, but thank You that Your Word is applicable to us today. That your word is relatable to us in our situation and where we live today. Father, I pray that you would make your word alive. You promised to do that. You promised to not let your word return void. So God, we pray that your living and active word may bear much fruit. Lord, be with me as I preach. Be with all of us here. With all those who hear. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of confusion in the world today about our identity, isn't there? There's a lot of confusion about who we are. So many people seem to be suffering from an identity crisis. You can see that everywhere you look. But it's not new. In the first century in Greece, written on the outside of the temple of Apollo in Delphi, was a little little inscription that said, Know thyself. Because that was an issue they faced back then, too, of who, who are we? Who are we supposed to be? What's our identity? Then the idea of who, knowing who you are or knowing yourself or your identity, it, it comes up as a theme throughout ancient philosophy. It comes up as a theme in modern philosophy, in psychology and sociology. Back in 1978, when I was just a wee little lad, there was a band... Named The Who. Anybody remember the band named The Who? I mean, if you're over 40, you probably do, but that's about it. And they had a song, and it was, it was, Who Are You? Who Are You? And it was, it was kind of their theme song. But the world, it really never answered the question of, Who Are You? It's grappling with the question of, Who Are You? Wrestling with identity. And today, it's really no better. We've not really resolved those answers, and the world's really confused about identity. People are confused about, Their identity as a man, their identity as a woman. People are confused about where their identity lies. And they place their identity in what they do or in what groups they belong to. When we're kids, we can find our identity in whose child that we are. You know, we're a Rawlings or a Smith or a Jones or a Mosley or a Hall or whatever. And that can become your identity as a little kid. You can become confused because our parents are divorced. Other times might be confused because we're adopted and we're not really sure who we are. When we're younger, identity can be found in what other people say about us and can be forced upon us and 
Other people might call us names like ugly or weird or dumb or whatever. We can think of ourselves by the sports that we play. You know, he's a basketball player, she's a gymnast, and as if sports are really where our identity is found. Maybe you think of your identity as I'm a jock or I'm emo or I'm punk or preppy or skater or outcast or goth or nerd or I'm a geek or I'm a this or I'm that. So who are you? Is that what your identity is? Maybe you're confused and you think you're a loser because somebody dumped you or your your parents, you know, feel like your parents love you and you feel worthless. Is that who you are? Maybe you're a victim of physical or emotional or sexual abuse and you don't know who you are and you feel defined by what has been done to you is that who you are maybe you've done bad things and you feel like that thing that thing in your past or all those things in your past is what defines you and you feel like that's who i am and i can never get away from it i can never change i'll never be different that's who i am Maybe you're an alcoholic or an addict and you think of yourself in those terms or maybe you, you're aware that you're just an angry person or you're bitter or you're resentful or you're sad and your sadness defines you and that's who you are. Maybe you find your identity and what kind of car you drive and, and where you live. Maybe you think of your identity as either poor or rich and you have all kinds of labels that you're ascribing to yourself. Maybe you find your identity in what country you're from or your ancestors are from. Maybe you find identity in your ethnicity. Is that who you are? Is, is who you are black or white, Latino, Asian, German, Italian, European, Polish, Hungarian, Irish, Scottish, African, some other ethnicity? I mean, whatever. How do you define yourself? Who are you? You know, maybe you say, well, I'm Italian, I'm loud, or, you know, I'm, a, I'm Irish and I'm just angry. And, you know, what, 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 what? And I'm not saying all Irish people are angry, okay? I just, I've heard that. Or maybe I'm German, I'm stoic, or I'm Russian, I have no feelings, you know. What, whatever, what, however you think of yourself, how do you define yourself? Who are you? Maybe you've caught yourself doing that. Defining yourself by those terms. You know, you're short, you're tall. Maybe you're a southerner. I'm a southerner. I'm proud of it. Or I'm a northerner. I'm not a southerner. Or I'm a, I'm a midwesterner. Whatever that is. I don't know. That's like, it's like the cardboard of identities. I don't know. It's, uh, sorry. I apologize for that. I just don't know what it means to be a midwestern. Are you an intellectual? Are you an artist? You know, are you Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian? Maybe you're defined by being a firstborn or by being a middle child. Or maybe you're the baby of the family. Or maybe you're the only child. Is is that what defines you? Who are you? What defines you? Where is your identity? Maybe your identity is other things. Like being a therapist or a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or salesperson. Pick your profession, whatever your profession is. Is that what defines you? Is that, is that your identity? Is that who you are? Maybe you find somebody else. You get married and you identify yourself as a husband or a wife. And that becomes your identity. Or maybe then you have a kid. And now you're a parent. And that's what your whole life becomes about. And that's your identity. 
Or maybe you're on the other end of things and your life revolved around your kids so much now that they've they've left the home and you're really confused. You don't know who you are and what your purpose is and you feel you're meandering trying to figure out why am I here? Who am I? What's my identity found in? Or maybe you haven't married and possibly maybe you may never marry. Maybe you find your identity as a single and you either hate it or you're proud of it and that defines who you are. See, we're, we're not, none of us is immune to finding our identity in things. Maybe your identity was in your job before, but now you've lost your job. Maybe you were fired or, or maybe you, you can't work now because of some physical disability or inability. And you're trying to figure out who are you and you're feeling worthless. You're feeling like you don't contribute and you don't... You let that identity define who you are and your worth. But what's the truth? What's reality? Who are you? Do you know who you are? To find the answer, we can't turn to psychology or sociology or anthropology or self-help books or certainly not the government. They don't know who they are still. They're not going to help you with that. So who are you? What's your identity? The good news is I think the Bible directly talks to our identity. It talks to who we are. From the very beginning of the Bible, all the way through in the book of Ephesians as well. And this is one of really the main ideas in the book of Ephesians. That it, it answers the question that's not obviously asked, which is, who are we? And Ephesians answers that question. But way before Ephesians, back in the book of Genesis... God told us who we were. And He said that He made Adam and Eve, mankind, in His image. In the image of God, He made them both, male and female, equally bearing the image of God. We were made to be image bearers of God. God made us to bear His image, to glorify Him, to testify of His goodness. But then in Adam, what happened? Everyone died. Physical death eventually comes to all. Spiritual death occurred once Adam sinned. And so because of Adam, in Adam all died when Adam sinned against God and he rebelliously sought his own glory. In Adam, Scripture tells us that all of humanity was cursed. In Adam, all of humanity is under the sentence of death. In Adam, everyone can await the inevitable punishment and wrath from God that we all deserve. In Adam. But God had always planned to redeem humanity. God had always planned to make a new humanity that wasn't based on man's ability to live before God. See, Adam was not able to. He was a perfect man. He was without sin. I can't even imagine that. He was completely without sin, and yet he was unable to be who God made him to be on his own. He needed God. So God, from the very beginning, he planned something. He planned a new humanity. God had always planned to show his grace, his mercy, his glory, his kindness, and his love by providing a rescue for all those who were in Adam. That's what the Bible says about who mankind is, about our plight. God had always planned to rescue humanity by, not by making us able to do things on our own, 
but by completely revolutionizing humanity. By, by turning humanity on its head so that our very hope for humanity was not in ourselves, but in Jesus. He'd always planned to rescue humanity by creating a new humanity through His Son. And that's really what the letter of Ephesians is all about. It's, it's spelling out, it's laying out the fact that God has made a radical new humanity in Christ. And that's what the book of Ephesians helps us with. It helps us answer that question that ever since Genesis has been a damning question of who we are. In Adam we're dead and in Adam we're full of sin and Adam we're deserving death. In Adam we're deserving punishment. But in Christ... God has made a radical new humanity. That's really the the main idea this morning I want you to get is that God has made us a radical new humanity in Christ because that's really the central idea of the book of Ephesians that Ephesians unpacks and talks about the implications of is that God has done something that we could not do. He's made us, we who were in Adam, He's made us a radical new humanity in Christ. Prior to placing your faith in Jesus, who came to the earth and lived a perfect life, he lived the life that we should have. He died in our place. He took the punishment we deserved as sinners and descendants of Adam. Prior to being made alive in Christ, we were all in Adam. And maybe you're in Adam still this morning. Maybe you've not placed your faith, your trust in Christ yet. When Ephesians 2.12, it tells of our condition prior to being found in Christ. And it says in Ephesians 2.12 and 13, it says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. This is who we were, every one of us. Having no hope without God in the world. This was all of our identity, and maybe it's the identity of some still today. But here's the wonderful message that flows throughout the book of Ephesians. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, not in ourselves, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's really the major theme of the whole book of Ephesians. It's that God is about rescuing those who were without any hope. You've ever been hopeless? you ever been aware of your hopelessness? Maybe you placed your identity in all those things we talked about earlier and you've realized that, oh my goodness, I'm no longer an athlete. I've lost my job. People abused me. I'm sinful. And now you're confused without God, without hope. Here's the good news. God's about rescuing those without any hope. Whose identity was found in Adam and all the things of Adam and all those things we mentioned might not be sinful to do any of those things. Those are good endeavors that God has called us to. But the problem is when we find our identity in any of those things. It's finding our identity in Adam instead of finding our identity in Christ. So why do I call it a radical new humanity? Because, well, if something is radical, it means that it relates to, it affects the, the fundamental nature of something. Something far-reaching, something thorough. So this new humanity that God has instituted, it's a radical new humanity. Why? Because it's fundamentally changed who we are. Maybe you're struggling this morning with, who am I? You know, I'm I'm this problem, I'm that problem, I'm an eating disorder, I'm whatever I am. That's not who you're called to be in Christ. He's, He's called us to be a radical 
new humanity, and he's the one who recreates us. And so, how does this change occur? I'm glad you asked. Thanks. The first point that we're going to see really in this passage, and and, and really not just the beginning of the book of Ephesians, but all throughout the book of Ephesians, is that God is the one who calls us to himself. God is the one. That's how it happens. God's the one who calls us to himself. He's the one who gives us a new identity in him. And that's really good news. You know why? Because we're often stuck. I used to do construction with my dad in the summer times. And I remember that it was once really wet out. And we were in this boggy area. And I went in there. And I I don't know what work I was doing. and, And I got so deep. All of a sudden I sunk down about up to my waist. I couldn't get out. And I was stuck in this clay. This mud, I couldn't get out of it. And no matter what I did, no matter how hard I struggled, I couldn't get out on my own. And the bad thing is that my dad was running equipment and he couldn't hear me. But he saw me and once he saw me, he he drugged me out. My boots stayed behind in the dirt and I never got them again. But uh, (laughs) he did what I could not do. God has done what none of us could do. But it was way more severe than that. You see, when we're dead, we're at the bottom of a pool, having long since drowned, we're not able to cry out and call for help. But God calls to us and He makes us alive and He calls us to Himself. Look in verse 1, at the very beginning, Paul starts off with the foundation. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, listen closely, by the will of God. His very identity and what he was modeling at the beginning, what he's going to spell out for the Ephesians all through the letter, is that his very identity, their very identity, is in the will of God to have them, to call them to Christ Jesus. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The very first thing that he's drawing their attention to is that God has called him to. He's not somehow a different creature. He didn't make it on his own Either He's not superior to them. He's been called and chosen by the will of God. Now I want you to picture just for a minute in your mind the Apostle Paul. Um, he, he was a smaller man. He, he wasn't very handsome to look at. He wasn't a great orator. That actually gives me a lot of hope and confidence on Sunday mornings is that the Apostle Paul wasn't known as a great orator. But he was in prison when he was writing this letter. He was likely writing this letter from Rome in prison. And as he was thinking about prison, he he had a perspective. He wasn't finding his identity as a human prisoner. And he wasn't being discouraged and down and depressed. What helped Paul the most was that he found his identity in the fact that who God had called him to be By his will, by God's will, by God's choosing. He placed his hope in the fact that God was the one who had called him. So he knew that God would sustain him in prison. So he's writing this letter, encouraging them about their identity, encouraging them to have hope when he's in prison. He understood something significant. He understood that it's God who calls us to himself. But think about who the Apostle Paul was. He was a pretty unlikely guy, wasn't he? He's a pretty unlikely character to be writing to them to begin with. He was, he was writing to them to, to Ephesus. It's a, if you're, in case you're wondering where is Ephesus, it's this, it was a major city. It was probably the, the second most prominent city 
in the, in the Middle East, or back then it was Asia Minor. It was, it was just off the coast. It was a, they had a big harbor there. It was a trading city. It was influential. At one point he helped plant a church there. But it was very unlikely that God would use Paul to plant a church in Ephesus. It was very unlikely that God would use Paul to write a good portion of the New Testament. You see, Paul was putting his hope in his own ability at one time, just like Adam, just like all of us do. Paul was putting his hope in his own ability to keep God's law, to be good on his own. Paul was previously called Saul. Do you remember the story of Paul? Jesus then chose Paul when he was Saul, though. Saul was persecuting Christians. Saul had actually stood and watched and held the cloaks of people while they were stoning Stephen. Paul was persecuting Christians and putting them to death. He was putting them in prison. He got letters and he was actively an enemy of Christ. He, he, and he was so deceived that he thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was good. He thought he was keeping the law. He thought he was obeying God. But God had to stop Paul. And you remember how God stopped Paul? He stopped Paul on, on the road. Paul was going to persecute Christians. He was going to do what he thought was right and good. And, and Jesus stops him with a bright light, knocks him off the horse, says, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He goes, who are you, Lord? Paul wasn't looking for God. And despite what we think, none of us on our own are looking for God until He calls us. Now, we may not be aware of the fact that He is putting those circumstances and situations in our lives so that we cry out, Who are you, Lord? But Paul knew that. He was an apostle by the will of God. He knew that God had chosen him. And then, ironically... What does Jesus do? One of the first things that, you know, besides blinding his eyes and when the scales fall off, he he renames him to to Paul from Saul. And what does Paul mean? It it means little, insignificant. Paul Paul means small. You know, I think that was kind of God's way of reminding him that, you know, you thought you were really big in your own eyes. Now I'm going to show you, you're small in your own eyes, but it's when you're small, when you're humble, that that is when I work through you. That's when I do great things through you. See, it's our awareness of the fact that God is the one who calls us to Himself that enables us to be effective in serving Him and in loving Him. It's when we understand that we're small in God's eyes, but on our own, but He makes much of us. So God called Paul, and He made Paul an apostle. And Paul's writing is a representative of Jesus Christ now. And Paul knew that he didn't call himself. He knew it was by the will of God. It was God's unlikely choosing that saved him, that commissioned him, that changed him and made him fit for serving the Lord. And Paul is writing to the Ephesians because he wants them to know that too. He wants them to know that they may feel like they're unlikely. They may feel like they're unable to change. You may feel like you're an unlikely candidate for change. You may feel like you can't be different, like all these other things are identifying you, that you're bound to be who you think you are. And Paul's writing to them and, and the Holy Spirit is writing to us and wants us to hear that now you're not bound by who you think you are. In Christ, I'm going to make you someone brand new. See, it was God's call that chose 
Paul. It was God's choosing that changed Paul, that made him alive, enabled him to respond, gave him God's unmerited grace. In the life of a man who was once a hater of Jesus and persecuted the followers of Jesus, and yet now, this same Paul, this unlikely character, he writes this letter of Ephesians to us. He thought he knew God. He thought he was doing the right thing. God stopped him. Now skip down to the first part of verse 4, if you will, for a moment. In verse 4, it says, Just as he chose us. So Paul is aware of his own identity, where his identity is. And he wants us to be aware of where our identity is. It's in the same place. It says, just as he chose us. He chose us in him. He chose us and in him. And when did he choose us? It says, before the foundation of the world. Are you thinking that God would just kind of, oh, you know, maybe I'll choose them or they were so good or, you know what, because I knew they would choose me, then, then I chose them. And, or maybe I saw their actions and then I kind of felt like I had to because they're a relatively good person. No, that's not what it says at all. Just as he chose us in him before you'd done anything, before you existed, before the foundation of the world. This was God's very plan from the very beginning to create a new humanity by choosing undeserving people like you and me. Like the Apostle Paul. Salvation, all its blessings, the gift to receive, are based on the initiative of God. And they're ours in Christ Jesus. Paul's trying to get our attention at the very beginning of the letter. He's trying to set the stage for who we are. For where our identity is found. He's communicating some big ideas. He says he's an apostle chosen by the will of God. And... He says he chose us and him since before the foundation of the world was laid. And I, I love the way there's a theologian named Peter O'Brien. I love the way that he puts it. He says to say that election or God's choosing took place before creation. It indicates that God's choice was due to his own free decision and love. Before the foundation of the world existed, God chose us. This had nothing to do with us. This was all about his own free decision and love, which were not... Dependent on temporal circumstances or human merit. The reasons for his election, his choosing, were rooted in the depths of his gracious, sovereign nature. Why is that good news for us? Why, why is it so important for us to get the fact that God chose us first? Because if we think that the, it began with us, then when our faith wavers... Our confidence is shot. Our confidence is gone. We have no hope if our hope is in ourselves. Even perfect Adam couldn't keep himself in God. And we think that we're going to do better? No, we have a greater hope than that. Our hope is that God has called us. That God has chosen us. And that if we have a desire to respond to God, that means that He's been at work in us. And so we can say... I want to love God. That means He's made me alive and chosen me. And I want to respond in faith knowing it's been His gracious, sovereign nature that's given this to me. Let's skip the latter part of the quote. I'll have it up on the blog if you want to read it. God chose us to be in Christ Jesus before the foundations of the world even existed. In an eternity past, before you'd done one thing good or bad, 
Nothing to do with whether you merited or demerited his favor. That's really good news, isn't it? God chose us himself before we could make him mad. Before we could try to earn favor that we would never be able to do anyway. And have an unsure, unsolid foundation. God says, well, before the foundations of the earth were planned, I knew you and I chose you and I planned for you. And I plan to make you a new humanity. That's good news that we have in Ephesians. And it goes throughout the book and that affects how we live and how Paul entreats us and calls us to respond in light of who we are. And then he does something else in the letter. Look down in, in verse 1. He, he begins the letter by reminding them of who they are. He says, you are saints. He calls them saints. He says, to the saints. And I may think it's a little odd. This, this past week, the Catholic Church just voted somehow. I don't know how they declare somebody to be. But Pope John Paul, they just declared he's a saint. Whatever, whatever that means, this is different than what the Bible means. What the Bible means is that we are all saints. We've all been set apart. We've all been declared righteous. We've all been made holy in His sight, even though we all know that we're not actually fully holy yet. And He calls them saints. He calls them saints, and that's significant. He What he's saying to them is that their entire identity has changed now. You're no longer in Adam. You are now saints. You are now somebody completely different. You're a radical new humanity in Christ. You are completely different. Maybe maybe you struggle with looking at who you are and thinking of yourself as still stuck in your old ways, still limited by your, your old man, your past. And you need to hear the message that if you place your hope in Christ, he calls you saints. So the great debate, are we, are we a sinner or are we a saint? You're, you're saints. We continue to sin, but we're saints. That's how he sees us in him. That's good news. And that's really the good news that goes throughout the letter to the Ephesians. And that's the basis of our hope to respond to him. The second point that we're going to see in these verses is that, really it's one of the other main ideas in the letter, is that in Christ we're a new humanity. He's made us completely brand new. Julie, my wife, she brought home some Queen Anne's lace flowers or weeds or whatever you want to call them. Um, they're weeds and they look pretty. So she brought them home a few weeks ago and there's these little black spots in the middle and we didn't know what they were. But hey, you know, they're, they're pretty and they stink. They don't smell good, but they look pretty. And after a couple of weeks, though, all of a sudden there was little things crawling on them. And it turns out that, no, don't get freaked out. There was just caterpillars. And um, these caterpillars, they were ravenous and they were hungry and they started growing and growing and growing, eating all the Queen Anne's lace. And then now we've got a chrysalis in our house. This caterpillar attached himself to a stem and has hung. And it was amazing. He attached himself to the stem. He hung by these two silk threads. And we kept waiting, waiting, waiting for him to transform. Woke up in the morning. He, he transformed overnight and become something completely different. It doesn't even look like a caterpillar anymore. It's a green shape. It's not the same colors. He's completely changed in every way. And at the bottom of the, this cage that we have him in is this little, little package, this little skin package. And the caterpillar shed from the top down, shed his entire skin. He'd be completely transformed. Early on in the, in the Christian church, one of the symbols for, for Christians was a butterfly. Why? Because it was symbolic of the new life, the new birth that we have in Christ. He completely transforms us to the very core of who we are. Yes, we're still humans, but it's a new humanity, a very different, very vibrant humanity. We've shed the old man and we've now become new. 
It's a complete and total transformation from one thing to another. God's at work in us, just like God was at work in that little caterpillar we didn't know, and overnight He transformed. Something was going on, even when we couldn't see it. In our lives, something is going on in your life. God's at work in you. You know why? Because He's made you a new humanity. And the fact that He's made you a new humanity is going to result in transformation, whether you see it or not. We're a radically new humanity now. God's always planned that, though. God's always planned to create a radical new humanity in Christ. You see, it wasn't surprising when Adam sinned. God had planned it from the very beginning before the foundations of the earth were laid. And He planned to call you, and He planned to call me, and He planned to make us new in Him. No longer in Adam. So we were an old humanity was in Adam. And Jesus has made us alive. He says, no, you are now in Christ. There's a radical transformation and change that's occurred. You've gone from being in Adam, the old man. You've now been given a new nature and now you're in Christ. We're a new humanity. He's calling them saints. He's saying we've been chosen by God. It's not based on their own merit or their works. And then he addresses them as those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And when I first read this when I was a kid, I, I struggled with it because I, well, I don't feel faithful. But that's not what this verse is saying. It says, you're faithful in Jesus Christ. That's who you are. We we can so often be aware of our faithlessness, but in Christ, He has made us and will make us faithful. He sees us as that, even though we're not. Why? Because we're in Christ. And you know what? Christ was and is always faithful. That's who He sees us as. Saints who are faithful despite our faithlessness, because we're in Christ Jesus. That's good news that we're going to see all throughout the book of Ephesians. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, we now have a righteousness that's not our own. Now we can be identified by our relationship to Jesus. No longer are we to think of ourselves in terms of what we've done or what's been done to us. Maybe bad things have been done to you. You've done bad things. We're not to be limited by that anymore. He's given us a brand new identity. We don't even look the same to Him. No longer are we to think of ourselves based on what we do for a living for a little while. Because none of us will do that the rest of our lives. No longer we view ourselves based on our season of life, our role in life. We're to see ourselves as radically different, as wholly different. We're to see ourselves completely defined, not by what anybody else says about us, or about how we feel, or we're not going to be defined by how we look. Fundamentally, he's saying to the Ephesians, and the Holy Spirit is saying to us, that we're to be defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ. Being a Christian, it's, it's not about hanging out around other Christians and being part of some club. That's not what makes you who you are. It's not just about what you do. It's not about going to church. It means a total life transformation. And if you're deceived into thinking that if I do these things, if I act this way, if I hang out with other Christians, that's what it means to be a Christian, then you've gotten it wrong. But here's the good news. There's hope. You can see that, no, it's my very identity needs to change. My very hope for who I am needs to change fundamentally. You're not defined or limited by what you can you can't do. Maybe you feel depressed or down because you can't do certain things. 
can't work, you can't provide, you can't do things that you feel like you should be able to do. Maybe you feel like you're limited because you're a geek or a jock or loud or quiet and no matter what others think you are, no matter whether they think you're ugly or pretty or He chose you because He chose you to be precious. He chose you to be a new humanity. He chose you to be valuable in His sight. Now He sees you as His saints, His people. You're not limited by any other lesser thing. Your identity is not to be found in anything else. That should be freeing. It should be liberating for us. I'm not defined by all these other things that I get so worried about. I get so worried about what people think about me. You're not defined by that. I get so worried about whether I have a job or not and I feel like I'm a loser. You're not defined by that. You're not defined by how the people see you. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by what's been done to you. You're saints. You're faithful in Jesus Christ because He was perfect in your place and God now credits all of that perfection that Jesus earned in your place. He credits that to you and says you were that. You're saints. You're faithful. So hear God's voice louder today than any other. The devil, the world, they try to tell us lies. They, they try to, our own thoughts try to condemn us and we can still we will continue to hear those hurtful voices in our heads telling us who we are, condemning us. God says, no, that's not who you are. You're saints, you're faithful, I've called you, I chose you before you did anything good or bad. You have hope in me. Because you're God's saint, you're chosen in Him. Let that truth really saturate your soul this morning. Let it, let it, let it revive you at the very core of who you are. God, I believe God wants us to receive that the identity that He has for us in Christ. See, God sent His Son to heal broken humanity by making us brand new. He desires to make you completely new in Him, not partially new. And what God says about you is what matters most. What can man do to you now? If God's for you, who's going to be against you? Who, whose opinion matters? God's opinion matters, and He's already said... If, if you've responded to Him, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you can be sure that He's chosen you. He's called you saints. He's called you faithful. He's made you new humanity. That's what your confidence should be in. And Paul's going to go through that truth unpacking. And really in the first three chapters of Ephesians, if you want to understand what are they about, it's all about our identity in Christ. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, he spells out who we are and he lays that out as a plan. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's a response to who we are as new humanity. That's how we're to live as a new humanity. That's, that's what Ephesians is all about. In verse... 19 of chapter 2, I think we have it on the screen, it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. We used to be, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, there may be some who are not. I would encourage you to respond today. To ask God to forgive you from your sins. To place your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus. And say, I'm not going to do like Adam did and try to place my faith in my, my ability to be good enough for who I think I am. I'm going to place my hope in faith in who Jesus was for me. And that's what I'm going to trust in. I'm going to live for Him. And God, I, I pray that you would save me. And so, I, If that's you this morning, I, I encourage you to respond. If you have placed your faith in Him, then you can be sure that you've been forgiven. You've been made new. God's called you. He's made you a saint. He's made you faithful. And because He's done those things, it tells us something else in these verses. In verse 2, 
He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's really the third thing we're looking at these verses. It's just that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. In Christ we have every spiritual blessing. Did you get each and every one of those words? In Christ we have every spiritual blessing, not some spiritual blessings. Maybe the spiritual blessings belong to them, but not to me. You can feel like that sometimes. Like, I'm unworthy, so those people were more blessed than I am spiritually. No, he says, every Spiritual blessing belongs to you in Jesus Christ. His intention in this letter is that they may experience the grace and the peace of God through Jesus Christ. And he tells them, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're in Christ Jesus. We receive the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. God's not angry with you anymore. We can know and experience the peace of God in our lives daily. The themes of God's grace that run throughout the letter. He mentions grace so many times throughout the letter. In, in chapter 1, six and, verses 6 and 7. In chapter 2, verses 5, 7 and 8. Chapter 3, verses 2 and 7 and 8. And then in chapter 4, verses 7 and 29. And chapter 6, verse 23. Grace just runs throughout the book of Ephesians as a theme of that. Because you're now a new humanity, you've received the grace of God. And it's His grace that sustains us. The same grace that called us, that made us saints, is making us faithful and will sustain us throughout. And He mentions peace in chapters 2 and verse 14 and 15 and 17 and chapter 4 and chapter 6. And these things run throughout the entire letter. And you know how He closes the letter of Ephesians? In, in Ephesians six twenty three and 24, He says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. With love incorruptible. Grace and peace are ours because we've been made a new humanity in Him. And He's going to give us the grace and peace that will enable us to endure and respond and love Him in return. And then He says in verse 3, in Ephesians 1 3, He says, Blessed be, I think it's the next slide, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Wait a minute. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You may feel like, I've not been blessed. I don't have every spiritual blessing. He says, no. What, whether you're aware of it or not, He's given you every spiritual blessing. It, it's like somebody's given you the deed to a home that you've never seen, you've never been there before, but it's yours. And you just need to take possession of that. And he's saying you have every spiritual blessing, whether you're aware of it or not, whether you've been there or not, whether you've received it or not, you have, it belongs to you. Every spiritual blessing, every blessing through the Holy Spirit has been given to us in the heavenly places in Christ. In verses 4, all the way through verse 14 of this chapter, it tells us the nature of these spiritual blessings. You can look it down in your Bible if you want in chapter 1. He talks about some of these blessings, including election and holiness and God's adoption in verses 5 and 6, and redemption and forgiveness, a knowledge of God's plans to make everything complete in Him, a blessing of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about the hope of glory. And he mentions the word blessed three times in these verses. He wants us to get that he has really blessed us. You may not feel blessed this morning, but see, it, that's often because our identity is in the wrong place. Our hope is in the wrong place. We're looking for these idols to fulfill us. If you were here last week with James chapter 4, 
We don't get, we won't get angry. We don't feel like we have blessings from God. God says, no, you really do have every spiritual blessing. Even if you don't have the things of the world, He's giving you something way more important. He's giving you hope in Him, a new identity in Him. He's giving you peace with God. He's giving you His grace. And lastly, the final thing we'll look at really briefly, it's a hint at the rest of the contents of the letter, and really that's that He chose us to be holy. The fourth and final thing we'll see at the end of verse 4 is He chose us to be holy in Christ he chose us. What did He choose us for? He chose us to be holy. That's really the theme of verse of chapters 4, 5, and 6 in the, in the letter to the Ephesians. First three chapters, who we are in Christ. We're a new humanity in Him. Because of that, He chose us in Him to be holy. And so He sets us up at the very beginning of, these, of, the, of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 4, it says, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That why? Here's the purpose. That we would be holy and blameless before Him. Maybe you're never chosen for a sports team. You ever, were you ever that, that person? Maybe you don't want to raise your hand. You're like, no, I've already done that before. You know, I was the last person called, and then you know I had to be called for kickball. You know, um, I was never really chosen. Maybe I feel like I wasn't ever good enough. Here's the thing: God's chosen you. None of that matters. God's chosen you. Get this: the most powerful, the coolest person in existence. The person whose opinion really matters. The person who you want to be most like. The person who is able to make you like them. He's chosen you. And He's chosen you to be holy. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. He's going to enable you to be who He's called you to be. Because He's the one who's transforming you. He's the one making you alive from that little black spot to a crawling caterpillar. He's the one who, who gives you new life. And he, He's called you to be holy. He's called you to, to have that new life. But He's the one who's going to work in you to give you that new life to begin with. He chose us to be holy. He's made what was unholy, holy. Maybe you're feeling unholy. Here's the good news. God chose you to be holy. He declares you holy. And He's going to make you holy. Whether you're aware of His working or not. God's chosen us. What a What a dream. Better than maybe you dreamed about a knight in shining armor coming and rescuing you. Or maybe as a guy you dreamed about some Rapunzel letting down her hair or something weird like that. Although I always thought that was odd because wouldn't that really hurt climbing up the hair thing? But and besides that, back in the old days, everybody had bad breath. They didn't have toothbrushes, so it's not like that's a big dream anyway. So They probably smelled bad too. No deodorant, right? I don't want a knight in shining armor or a princess. What, what do you define as the ultimate call? What do you think is the, is the best thing that could happen to you? What do you think? You can be chosen to win a million dollars or win $300 million. If you, if you could be chosen to be the next contestant on whatever, game show, Survivor, or if that's still on, I guess, or, or, or maybe you could be chosen to have total home makeover. Is that the best thing you can imagine? Well, here's the, the wonderful thing in the book of Ephesians. The best thing that could ever happen to you, God's chosen you. Better than one of the lottery. That, that'll go away. All these possessions in the world, they go away. They fade. We're moth and rust. We'll decay. We have something that's more lasting than, than human relationships and whether one person has chosen us or not. You see, God's chosen us. That's the best thing that could happen to us. And He chose to make us holy, and He's 
He's making us holy. In chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus died. It talks about the, the relationship between Christ and the church. And then it tells us something about what Jesus died for. It says that, that Jesus promised to make us holy before God. Not only that, He's promised to make us without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. It says in Ephesians chapter 5. So that we might be presented holy and without blemish to Him. He chose us. He's transforming us. He's called us to be holy. And He's the one who's going to be working in us to make us holy without spot before Him. What better thing could happen to us? So I'll go ahead and ask the band to go ahead and come forward. We'll close the song. Meanwhile, though, I want you to answer the question in your own mind. Who do you think you are? When I was going through that list at the beginning of who are you, who, what's your identity been found in? Where are you tempted to find your identity? Where do you most often find your identity? Who do you most often think of yourself as? I think God wants to speak to each and every one of us and wants to say, put that aside. That's not who you are anymore. I'm making you a radical new humanity in Christ. God's made you new in Him. He's made you to be in Christ Jesus. You're no longer defined by all those things in Adam. We've been called and chosen by God. He's called us to Himself. He's made us saints and faithful in Him. He's given us every spiritual blessing. And now, everything is different. Everything is transformed. Everything's new. Let's stand and worship together.